Welcome to Bonus Features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we talk to writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love to get a deeper perspective. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me this week is my actual real-life brother, Casey Taylor. Now, Casey has written for numerous outlets, including Defector, Vox, Passion of the Weiss, talking about everything from the history of tattoo artistry to chicken wings to uh, why Jay Retard's Blood Visions is one of the great albums of all time. He's not only my blood, but he's also a fucking talented dude who has an incredible perspective on all the art that he consumes. Now, we had him come to talk about Boogie Nights because when we first came up with this podcast, texted Casey and was like, hey, if you had a secret handshake movie, what would it be? And he said, Boogie Nights, without missing a beat. And so I thought it would be cool to have him come on, talk with me about one of the formative directors of when we were kids, how that kind of shaped our worldview, and also how we grew up with Paul Thomas Anderson, for lack of a better term, and how his films still stick with us and speak to us even in through adulthood. But enough for me. Here's Casey Taylor on the magic of Boogie Nights. Casey, how are you, buddy? Jacob, how are you, man? It's good to good. see you. Good to see you as well. Um, and as we were kind of chit-chatting before we started recording, you were on to talk about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and specifically Boogie Nights. Um Mostly because I remember when when Martin and I first came up with the idea for the show, um, I had texted you, uh, not really, with almost like apropos of nothing, and was like, hey, so like if you had a secret handshake movie, what do you think it would be? And you were like, oh, it's Boogie Nights. Like, that's that's the one for me. Why? Why Boogie Nights? Uh, I think. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that are like super geeky, right? Like, which would be how uh, 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 reminiscent it is of like Altman and Scorsese movies and like just adoring Paul Thomas. And there's a lot of different things, but I actually think more than anything else, it's like I always consider secret handshake type films or pieces of art to be those things that are like very resonant with you even before you understand why and then like as you grow and grow and you revisit the film or the piece of art or whatever it is it, it like changes with your with your perception and it's almost like it reveals itself as something that radicalizes you a little bit towards a viewpoint or something like that I, i've always felt that way about like really resonant pieces of art like when you revisit them it's like as you get older, something clicks and you realize, oh, that's why I like this. And I just did. I didn't know that. I didn't get it. Yeah, I definitely get that because there's almost like a an element of decoding them as yeah. you as you get older. Um, for me, like Videodrome has been a lot that way yeah. years ever since seeing it is because like it honestly like I remember the first time watching that film and being like, I don't know if I understand this correctly, however, it elicited such like a, a visceral response in my gut that I want to figure out why, like a, why this movie exists and be like, 
what exactly is like clicking in my brain because it otherwise is just a very disgusting movie where James Woods grows a vagina in his chest and, and starts pulling guns out of it. Yeah. So that alone, I guess it's, I say that out loud and I'm like, actually that's kind of appealing, but like, yeah. um, you know, yeah, I actually think that's fine without, a, without even being a metaphor. I'm just like, yeah, I'm into that. Even though I, you know, there's more to it, but yeah. Hell yeah. Ooh. Who would have thought that James Woods' Twitter feed would eventually just become one giant stomach <laughs> vagina? <laughs> yeah, man, weird guy. That, that was always the, the agony and ecstasy of James Woods, is he was such an undeniable talent and such a piece of shit. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, damn it, we gotta put him in this movie, but fuck, James Woods. But to, to get back to Boogie Nights, it, um, it, yeah, it, it, it there's something about it to where like you, you respond very viscerally to it and then you spend a lot of time then. And for like this movie for us, it would be decades at this yeah, point man. because it literally came out. I was 14 going on 15, I believe cause it's 97 and it's like, um, and you're, you know, a couple years younger than I am. Like this was a movie that we discovered very much. Like we weren't old enough to go see it in the theater uh, you know, we, we discovered it on videotape and yeah, this, was then, a, this was a West coast video rental, man. Yeah. And then sure. proceeded to be like, what the fuck is this now? Then to be fair, I do think the, let's say scandalous nature of it definitely fed into that, that, you know, 14, 15 year old boy and his little brother's like lizard brains. It was like, Ooh, we're, we're not supposed to watch this movie. Yeah, I think what was interesting, though, even thinking back to when I was, like, uh, you know, too young to really understand that. I mean, I, re I do really feel like there was the scandalous part that felt like I'm being let in on a world that I know I'm not supposed to know about. But then even as a, like, young boy, like, I could tell they weren't saying it was cool. You know what I mean? And, like, that was... Like and and there are obviously parts of it that are obvious with the, how his life degrades. But I mean, even in general, I could tell it was not like, hey, how awesome would it be to be like a porn guy in L.A.? I was like, oh wow, okay, this sucks. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean is kind of the point of Dirk Diggler, right? Is that the to your point, like you are as a character, like pretty much recognizing like this guy's dreams are as like weirdly small time as you can get. Like he literally is like my dick. This is the thing I'm real good at. <laughs> how do I, how do I let this make me famous? And yeah. like, that's it. That's, that's as the cap of his aspirations in life. Yeah. But I think what's interesting that, though, okay, sure. But like, there's definitely a tonal shift for him. I mean, there's a very there. I think the reason you root for him is there's an inherent sweetness to him before he becomes famous. I, I think it's like, so there's a corruption angle to it that I think keeps him sympathetic even through all that stuff because it's not – to me it wasn't always – even though like some of it is just like you root for the guy because he's like – he has a Corvette poster on the wall and a big dick and that's basically like his 401k. Like he's like let's – you know. So you're like all right, you know, good luck, man. But like I also think there's like – um. I don't know. There's such an inherent like uh, naivete that isn't 
uh, I don't know how I'm trying to say it. It's like he doesn't he doesn't seem to want to be famous for reasons other than like he wants to be like nice to people (laughs) at first. He wants he wants to be the guy on the poster. Yeah. Sort of like, again, if you want to talk about like lizard brain ideas, his idea of fame is just simply like. I just want to get out of my fucking room where my mom screams at me and calls me stupid all the time. And my, my dad is totally ineffectual. Like, how can I just transcend this world and get on that poster? And yeah, like, yeah. That's, there is like a, a, an innocence to like his, his motivations at first. Cause even that, you know, the, the earliest scene where we're kind of clued into jerk at this point, Eddie Adams um his talent let's say is that like that scene between him and his girlfriend uh, that we never really see again past that the first reel let's say like that's not played like sleazily no or mean or anything like it really is like presented as like here's two kids in bed together with like a dream of just doing something else no i honestly think what <laughs> This is going to sound like I'm doing a bit, but honestly, because I know how hard it like it's very hard to direct actors and really capture like like more than just line delivery, like the vibe of a line and what it's supposed to feel like. Like he genuinely gets her when she says like, what you're so good at fucking me or whatever, like your cock is so beautiful. It doesn't play like yeah it doesn't play sleazy it plays honestly like oh man she like really loves it <laughs> it's like so sweet somehow even though you're listening you're like what you know but it is it's it was like a, it's a very beautiful and simple like i don't know appreciation it's not it's it's again i i feel like one of the things that now like when you think about how it resonates with you later in life when you to your point about his ideals are just I want to be the guy on the poster. It's very reminiscent of like the American dream concept when you're younger. It's like, yeah, look, things suck now, but dude, just fucking wait till you get out there. And then like, if you make it long enough, you realize like, oh, no, that maybe like actually that was better. You know, like I didn't want to do all this other crazy shit. You see what happens to like people who get famous and they go crazy. It's like, I don't know. It's uh. That, I think, is one of the things that resonates with me about it now that didn't when I was younger. Um. Sure. It, in on, like, the main episode, Martin brings up um, this concept of, like, how Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson, in a weird way to bring up your, your idea of the American dream, like, he simplifies it in a way that, like, normal people would dream about. Like, Buck. Uh, yeah. Like, his entire goal is, I want to own... My st- my own stereo store. We yeah, meet dude. in a stereo store, and it's like he he wants to be like a small business owner. And again, like you said, like how the world or whatever kind of keeps these people down, or they can never really achieve it or whatever. It literally takes Buck getting caught up in a a a shootout with his pregnant wife in the car, all because she wanted donuts. Like that's how he funds the store in the end. Not because of the porn, not because of talents or anything. It's just, he lucked out. And it's this weird kind of, uh, let's say cross section between like destiny and coincidence that Anderson is obviously fascinated with for his, his first two very big movies. I'd say Sydney is, is after something a little different. 
Yeah, and, um, and I think too though, it, like thinking about Buck, thinking even about like <laughs> Jess Rockwell, uh, it's like I think PTA has been very obsessed with like kingmakers too, you know, and it's like who's the one that gets to say who say who who gets the power, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you see that in Boogie Nights with Jack Horner, right? Because it's like people begging him to get on screen and it's like he he's the one that says like who's the one that gets to fuck on camera right he's the one that gets to make you a star or if you have to be behind the camera and just be a guy who has to aspire to own a stereo store but then you think about like there will be blood right and the, and it's just the struggle between plain view and kind of the church but really it's like everything it was just <laughs> the world you know like uh and, and who gets the power there? And then it, even in the master, right? It's like it's a complete struggle between those. I, anyway, I, I think there's an interesting theme there that's obviously like, you know, you could easily tie it back to probably like religion and stuff too. But there's an overtly political message to a lot of PTA's movies that I think makes it feel like a ongoing commentary too and thread. Yeah, to a certain degree. To yeah, but well, political is the wrong way to put it. Um, because po- political is its own fucking thing. Um, uh, he has a definite point of view on like morality and like what is and isn't acceptable as far as like societal or hierarchical structures. Maybe that's the better way to put it. Yeah, and I mean because I, I don't think it's out of line to, to even call PTA's movies political. I don't think he intends them to be. I just think they naturally are by by the things that he's. Uh, fascinated by let's say because he's still the guy who would go on to adapt inherent vice which isn't exactly an apolitical work (laughs) true very true but i mean no you're definitely right in that you know he connects the the idea of like the american dream to really two things is that um there's achieving let's say a certain degree of like self-starterdom you know, in one way or another, like he loves, like even Dirk Diggler is a guy who basically, you know, took, you know, what did they say? Three buses to go yeah. bus tables at this club, you know, and they even, they comment early on, like you could have bust, you could have gotten this job like down the street from you. He goes, you know, but I want to be, I want to be here. You know, I'm Eddie Adams from Torrance at this yeah. point. But like, uh, Daniel Plain to bring up Daniel Plainview again. I mean, you first meet Daniel Plainview in a literal fucking silver mine by himself, where he breaks his own leg from falling on a rickety ladder. And by the end, he's the uh, let's say the personification of like vampiric capitalism. And it's like, you know, he he loves that idea. And even with with like uh, Phantom Thread, you know, is is literally about a woman who is more or less picked up in a diner, if you think yeah. about it, and then learns to navigate this very powerful man and kind of assert her place in the house of Woodcock, this famous uh, fashion designers, like palace and like yeah. legacy. Now, part of that's obviously a love story, but it's also all, he loves these people, these people who otherwise might be losers, that they, they claw their way out of being losers for at least a little bit. Yeah, it's like, um, I think what's always, no- so, okay, so 
not to go like too stupid with this, but like I do think though that it's hard for me not to connect that back to like him being ba- he's like the ultimate California kid, California director. That's always been his vibe. And when you think about the history of California, which he's obviously obsessed by, that is the history of California. California was, you know, where at first in the 19th century, I mean, there was never anything actually pure about it, but there was at least some opportunity for people to get out there and suddenly become wealthy. That's how the Bush family got wealthy, believe it or not. Um, The Bushes were like the sons of abolitionists and blacksmiths until the 19th century. That's how they got rich out there. So there was this new money that came in. They forced their way in through like hustle and drive. But then I also think it's notable that in PTA's arcs, there's always the corruption too, right? There's the admiration of like nudging your way in there through grit and determination. But then the acknowledgement that like once you get there, even though – you should be the person that knows how to change it. You don't. You don't want to. You know. Sure. But I mean, I'm glad that you bring up the the corruption angle too, because that actually, as we're talking about Daniel Plainview, it it leads to me that the second thing that seems to be most important in in PTA's, uh, let's say, themes or motifs is that one is this connection to the American dream of being the self starter, but the other is finding the people who more or less become your family. Like family is the other part of, of PTA's, let's say, overall thesis, unlike the American dream. And it isn't the people that you're born to. It's the people that you kind of collect along the way. Boogie Nights obviously being like this shows up in Sydney. It's very much because that's very much a surrogate father son story even him adopting a daughter and Gwyneth Paltrow and everything like he's he's already working that stuff out but with Boogie Nights it literally is about like this collective this very like you said Altman-esque collective that also just happens to operate in this let's say subculture yeah yeah and I mean, there's familial roles within the house, right? I mean, like Julianne Moore's character is obsessed with mothering, which is like, you know, a surrogate for the fucking kid that she leaves behind, you find out later, right? But like, Jack is the father and the creator. I mean, there's like, there's a lot of biblical, I think, references within the film. You know, I think, um, well, I don't know. Anyway, keep going. But like, there was there was something you brought up that uh, was reminiscent of a specific biblical thing that I just lost for a second, but it'll come back up as we keep talking. Because I because that obviously plays out a lot in PTA's movies. But there was something specific I thought of. Sorry, keep. Oh no, Chosen Family. Now I do remember. There was like a lot of mistranslations actually between like Aramaic and Hebrew biblical versions in the King James Bible, where like um, it was like. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was like hating your father is kind of how it was translated into English. But that wasn't actually what it meant in the original like Hebrew and Aramaic versions. It was more about finding your own family. It was like, let any man that basically be just devoutly committed to their family. Like, that's not actually the way you should live. You are supposed to find where you're supposed to be. And um Anyway, I think given like all the other like allegories that are in the film, it's it's hard to ignore that aspect of it, too, in my opinion. Sure. I mean, and if you're talking Old Testament, this is a guy who in his next magnum opus would literally 
almost write himself out of a corner by having it rain frogs. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he swears. That's one of the things, too, is that you, you bring up PTA being the ultimate California director and, and, and uh, being, you know, fascinated by history, but he's also kind of a valley girl in a weird way. Like, if you ever listen to his, like, interviews and stuff, it's, I, I wonder how much of this, because he, he talks about how, like, he, he doesn't see the religious stuff in Magnolia, and, like, you're even finding religious stuff in uh, uh, Boogie Nights, too, is that I wonder how much of that is him being a, a sort of kind of flippant valley girl and fucking with you a little bit and being like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Like, I mean, it, it has to be. Like, I... <laughs> I mean, I remember seeing this is actually God, this show is like such a fucking artifact now in so many different ways. But I remember watching his interview before There Will Be Blood came out on the Henry Rollins show. And oh, Rollins wow. like asked and like Rollins asked him about like, oh, like, like in the war on oil and PTA, of course, before the movie comes out, it's like, ah, you know, I don't know about all that and stuff like that. And then the movie comes out and it's literally about a guy using religion to advance his capitalist agenda. And you're like, oh, okay. yeah. I mean, listen, these, it, it happens too often. You know what I mean? Like for it to be a coincidence. But what I would also say is he's obviously a very well-studied person. And like maybe his <clears throat> reaction to that is like, you know, it's hard to pin it to a religion when also like a lot of these allegories predate religion. You know, a lot of them go back to ancient Egyptian tribes or ancient like Chinese tribes before Christianity even came through there. You know, like there's there's a lot of ways that like these are common languages between cultures. And then like so then tying it to a religion maybe is is unfair. Right. But but I mean, it's, uh, you know. Whether you want to call it Christian or not, there's a creator allegory going on in almost all of its films. Oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> and God doesn't let you block your own sex scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so who, I always wanted to ask you this because I know mine specifically and I'm pretty – I think I know yours. But who is your favorite in this? Like who is the best performance in the entire thing? Um in terms of just creating a total character for you? Because I I know mine, but I want to hear yours. I, it is a three-way tie between John C. Riley, uh, Louise Guzman, and <laughs> William H. Macy. Those are my three, like, and, and I mean, this is, I, every performance in this film is fantastic, but like, those are the three that I feel like with the most limited amounts of things they could have done on screen create like, like Louise Guzman doesn't have that many lines. And yet I know everything about that character from that film. Like I know the first person you basically meet in the movie. He, <laughs> he leads you into the club where you, you meet everybody for the first time. He's so fucking cool. In that movie. I mean, not cool. Isn't the right word, but he's, he's charisma. I mean, that's like the Luis Guzman that I will always remember. Like, that's the first performance I'll always think of when I think of him. And that's an iconic character actor. But that performance is, like, extraordinary. And then William H. Macy just does the the sad sack so well. It's like 
he he has unparalleled sad vibes, but he also just does so much with it. It's incredible. Yeah, between so. this and Quiz Kid Donnie Smith, like he's forever just the 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 loser that you love the entire time. But you're not you're not even sure if you want to see them succeed. You're just like, oh man. This guy's got a rough go of it, right? Yeah, now. you just want to see him catch a break. It's yeah. just like, can something happen for this guy? And I guess, you know, he took it into his own hands, you know? But Riley is definitely mine. Like, he yeah. ranks number one um, because I just... And I, I listened to, uh, in prep for the uh, main podcast and this one, uh, I listened to the director's commentary on that old new line platinum edition uh, DVD. And there's that one, there's the great one where it's the cast where, where different cast members filter in and out. And Mark Wahlberg even comes on and is drunk and talks about that time he broke his dick. Like that one's really funny. Uh, but the, the solo one that Pete's day does is, is pretty incredible too. Because he's pointing out things here and there and, and, and kind of why he cast these people, especially being the age that he was and, and his fascination with them. But with Riley, he was just like, this is, bar none, the funniest motherfucker I've ever met in my life. And I was just like, why is nobody just putting this guy in movies and just letting him basically light the room on fire? And like... I think you get that energy the entire way with Riley, like him just totally finding a guy who's like, I get it. I get your thing. So just go do it. Like, it's the first time I feel like Riley has ever let off the leash completely, you know, because even Sid is a lot more muted. He gets he gets a couple big moments there. But here it's like like you literally meet him that that first time when when it's Dirk and. Uh, I always call him chest, but like uh, when they meet for the first time, Brock it, Landers, it, man. The 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 scene from Step Brothers, like you could call me Dragon, but yeah. it's like the '70s porn version of that. How much can you bench? <laughs> oh, I'm this margarita, and like literally, he like when he fucking starts making the margarita, and it drowns out whatever response. Uh, giving, like I lose my shit every time He's but so like good, dude. that and the, the whole scene where they obviously the you got the touch like studio recording moment but the in the director's commentary PTA is also like my only note to them was I want you to terrorize him and it's like and that's Michael Penn that's the yeah. guy who was doing the music for the movies and is, you know, Sean and Chris Penn's brother. But it's like, he's just like, John C. Riley, please terrorize this man. And you could just see Michael Penn's face on screen like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I, why, do, why do I have to deal with it? I feel like what helps his performance a lot is that, like, uh, you can make a pretty good argument that Reed Rothschild is, like, the only guy that isn't bad the whole time. Yeah, like, he's not a bad person. He's the one that almost maintains his innocence, even as he's doing, like, crystal meth. Yeah, like, he's think, obviously, like, not ha – like, he's in – he's outside his comfort zone, but he's, like, doing it in service of of Diggler, thinking, like, like that's noble because he's just loyal to a fault the whole time. I mean, he basically is, like, a big Labrador – yeah, and he's so, and he, but he plays it so well. Like John C. Riley is the best 
Labrador actor we've ever had, you know? Like, he's yeah. so good at being a Labrador that you also are, <laughs> would be very sad if, if you lost him, you know? Yeah. The, the other one that I'm a big fan of in this, um, that obviously gets a lot of burn with people when they talk about the movie, but Thomas Jane as Todd Parker is like, what, one of the great eight-minute performances of all time, I'd say? He's not in the movie a whole lot. Dude, Tom Jane is the king of that. If you have Tom Jane, in your, and I say this with respect to Tom Jane, but like, <laughs> we usually if Tom Jane's on screen for more than 15 minutes in your movie, you have an issue. But if you keep him under 15, you have you have gold. Because yeah. he is you, he's so fucking good at like mastering just, I don't know, his... <laughs> the fucking money and the fucking floor safe thing is just so god damn it i mean like they care like he matches the energy of melina in that scene is like the best compliment you can give him and like that's melina's performance i mean i get i guess that's He's the other one smoking right smoking crack yeah, I guess it's not really. I, I your first question, who's your best? Who's the best performance in the film? Is like, all our answers are secondary to Melina, but sure. like, so that should have been a given, I suppose. But like, uh, but yeah, Tom Jane somehow like keeping up with him in that scene is fucking nuts, man. This is so yeah. good. I'm also a big fan of Cosmo. Cosmo does does a lot with those firecrackers. He was good with the firecrackers. He's Chinese, man. That's yeah. the that's the one scene that honestly, like, even though it's it's obviously like a huge standout for people, it's great, blah blah blah. Uh, it is the one scene to me that I I struggle with a little bit just in my own stupid critical head, in that it becomes a straight up Martin Scorsese movie for like ten minutes, which is fine. But it just feels almost like he and obviously he titles it. And one last thing it's like, but it's almost like he was just like, I need a burst of energy right here to just totally rip, burn off the screen. And I don't know if it 100 percent like fits. I mean, I think that it. I don't know. I think that's like both a fair critique, but also like placing it in context with the rest of his career this is like his second like i feel like he's it was right around there will be blood maybe punch drunk love actually but definitely there will be blood is the first film i feel like is just a pta film right like before that everything had some altman and had some scorsese and like there was also a lot of his own original shit but but yeah i mean that one is i just I think he does it so well that it doesn't bother me. And, oh, and, sure. it, and it just feels like such a fucking, I don't know. It's hard, even though like it, it does feel abrupt. I think, uh, how can you cut that out? You know, how could you ever cut that scene? That's the thing. No, no never. You, I mean, you, I'm not advocating for that. And especially in a, in a movie where he like even went into it, being like this is going to be more or less an epic yeah you might as well and like on our 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 full episode martin commented too and i think he put it well is that like pta especially in his writing but in, in his storytelling in general he's very novelistic 
And yeah, like, yeah. it doesn't feel out of place as like a, just a short chapter of like, this is the turning point for Dirk. It's, it's, you know, after this, he realizes I'm so far fucking gone. I got to go back. It's just such an extreme example of that. Um, but he, I do have a question for you on, in terms of tone and things that they may or may not fit. Um, do you not think, so I guess that the criticism of like Goodfellas, let's say, to where it's almost like you have to sit through a bunch of glorification of a, a subculture in order for like the downfall to occur. You know, do you think that applies to Boogie Nights too? I don't agree with this, mind you, but yet I wonder if there is any glamour to it in some people's heads. I mean, they're like acknowledging that I think that that would be that I that you and I I know you and I share this viewpoint, but I think it's just it's a silly way to critique it. But like I I would say like a little bit. Probably. <laughs> right. I mean, like, why wouldn't it be? I think that. But I also think that's part of the point. Like. um, There needs to be that deception. Right. Otherwise, the corruption and the downfall wouldn't make any sense. Otherwise, you would have to believe that everyone that does bad stuff is inherently evil. And I think that's a very naive thing to think. You know, I think there's a lot of ways for people to get corrupted into bad shit i mean that happens throughout history right um so like i guess yeah like it probably does it's hard for me to be like yeah man i remember when he was having sex with heather graham i thought i would never want to do that you know what i mean like obviously at, at first you're like oh like back then you could just go back to a guy's house and heather graham would have sex with you on a couch yeah like that sounds cool (laughs) <laughs> what am I going to sit here and say that doesn't sound awesome? That sounds great. And then you might get paid a lot of money for it. Hell yeah. But then like, you know, when the cocaine and the the other stuff happens, you go, oh, okay. <laughs> there's some issues here. I, I do think there's something fascinating about that backseat limo scene with, with Heather Graham too. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, well, obviously it's based on a real movie. It's a Jamie Gillis movie that whose name is is escaping me, uh, but he's directly referencing it. Where Jamie Gillis, who for I guess people who don't know who Jamie Gillis is, he was a very famous, very let's say on the edge porn star, uh, further than even like Harry Reams, um, in terms of like he would get into like some S and M and and real weird stuff. He's the star of Water Power. I don't know if anybody knows what Water Power is. It's essentially the porno version of Taxi Driver where Jamie Gillis uh, starts giving women enemas to clean. What the fuck? Yeah, to clean NYC of, of the scum and the filth. Like, it's real. It's fucked up. Yeah, uh, I, haven't, I didn't catch that one. Yeah, I have it on DVD. <laughs> cool. I'll uh, no, Don't mail it. I'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to get on a list anywhere. <laughs> I've, I've known for a long time that that I've been on one. <laughs> but no, it it is based on that. But what, and obviously it's commenting because the the movie it is commenting on on the quote unquote golden age of pornography of the mid to late seventies, let's say, transitioning into what would become, to your point, the corrupting agent 
in pornography, which was videotape, the, the cheapness of it, and more or less losing any kind of cinematic quality, um, which is now, you know, in the age of the internet, and more or less nothing but like you, you porn and, and clip stuff, and, you know, even whole scenes are like nothing but just like, we're going to fuck in the most misogynistic way possible. Um, X-Tube. Ooh. The X-N-X-X. X-Hamster, or whatever <laughs> it is. Like, anyway, uh, you can see almost like the beginnings of the, the modern porn that I'm describing with that backseat stuff, because they're essentially more or less doing bang bus, but it's seven, the 70s version of it where they're shooting it on 16 millimeter, which is kind of an interesting critique of like the uh, total, for lack of a better term, I guess, perversion of pornography itself. Yeah, I mean, I also think it's hard to deny, at least in terms of uh, which directors and filmmakers he's obviously always admired, it's hard to deny a parallel between the transition of cinema of the 70s to the 80s, too, right? Like, zooming out from pornography to, like, the general marketing, like, studio marketing machine came back in the eighties. Right. And like really started churning a bunch of shit out. There's a bunch of money going to it from the fucking government too, because it was like rah, rah time during the Reagan years. There was like a huge internal propaganda effort around the cold war. Like money was fucking flowing dude. And it was, uh, it was, there was, and that's not to say that the eighties were a lost decade. There's great cinema of the eighties, but like that is when the, the money machine and the marketing machine really kicked up, you know? And like, I think there's, there's a commentary there on like the, the most, you know, and at least in the world of Boogie Nights, the most hallowed creator of pornographic film now reduced to shooting on video in the fucking back of a, a limousine with a guy that doesn't appreciate what he considers to be a woman of, extraordinary talent because he doesn't and i think that's what's always so interesting to me about the roller girl character is like her primary struggle is like personified by that guy from the limo but like her inability to actually be what she wants to be because what she wants to be when is externalized is judged very harshly right so like anyway so that's interesting right whatever well yeah, what is that to to jump back to what you're saying in like terms of a macro sense of cinema and like its history? Like, you know, New Hollywood, which if you're doing the one to one comparison, which is essentially the golden age of pornography, is what it's representing here in Boogie Nights. Is that like it ends with Heaven's Gate in 1980? Like literally, boom, it's done. Yeah. Now people say to your point about the commercialization and commodification of cinema, like it obviously begins with Jaws and even further back beyond that was stuff like the exorcist becoming like the first couple big blockbusters that would show studios how to release these movies. But then, you know, you get Jaws two in 1978 and then you have heaven's gate signaling the end of, uh, you know, the new Hollywood after, you know, it's basically pulled and recut and totally just destroyed and almost takes down and bankrupts an entire studio and yada, yada, yada. 
Yeah. Anyway, um, but then what I do find interesting is that the 80s also does produce one of the crassest and, and frankly closest in, in terms of like just pure content um, to pornography in, in slasher films. Like slasher films become huge yeah. then and are actually directed by a bunch of, of ex-pornographers in a lot of cases, especially with guys like Sean Cunningham, um, who he and Wes Craven made pornos together, or uh, they're called couples films when they were cutting them because they were very soft. Um, even some gay <laughs> directors like Dom, Tom D. Simone coming in and, and making movies. Uh, like, I believe he made Hell Knight. Um, but my whole point is, to, to what you're saying, is that it's almost like, even when these guys give up pornography, it's not like they're coming in and making fucking remains of the day. Right. They're making hell night. That's <laughs> right. what the 80s is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. Like, I mean, I think there's a... I mean, that's what's so beautiful about the film is I think there's a lot of different parallels you could bring into it, right? Because at the end of the day, the commentary is that eventually like once you introduce like the financial incentive and the speculative capital and the like push for growth 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 right because like that was the commentary on videotape i feel like to him wasn't just about quality but it was like scale right because what's the first thing they say it's like the ability to reproduce it like very very quickly and effectively and efficiently like that's the main appeal right well, like so, the the modern analog would be digital it's like right. the thing that people talk about with digital is the fact that you can just keep shooting. You right. know, like I once saw Bill Lustig, who's a refugee of, of pornography, and then you know, another guy who transitioned to to making slasher movies and exploitation stuff, obviously uh, very successfully doing that. Uh, but I saw him at a Q&A uh, for Maniac, and somebody asked him, like, oh, what would you be your 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 number one piece of advice for uh, young filmmakers and he was like in the age of digital never stop shooting just keep shooting like you yeah. literally have this like film cost so fucking much back in the day that you had to be so careful with every setup he's like now he's like there's no reason if you want to go make a movie just go fucking make it just go get a cheap digital camera and make your goddamn movie and you could probably become famous yeah. you know but that's what videotape was too is that and honestly that's that's with some modern critics talking about the use of digital is that it's it's a cheapening thing all of a sudden you know to jack horner vhs represents the idea of like even though it's pornography to him it's art to him it's storytelling that's right that's right he's the guy who who once you know even has the big monologue of i want to make a film where like people are so enraptured by the story that they essentially come on themselves and are like, well, I got to find out what happens to fucking Chess Rockwell, you know? Yeah. But like that was to him, that was, that was, it was a big deal and, and shooting nothing, but basically like cheapo fuck scenes on VHS with no narrative was just a, you know, all of a sudden it's not an art anymore. And you're just a guy who shows up to a job. Well, I feel like it's like a uniquely, uh, coherent like point of view on it that was ahead of its time that recognized that like every advancement also comes with a pretty significant drawback right, right? and so like the transition like using his allegory the transition from from film to vhs was about 
faster, it was about cheaper, it was about more efficient, it was about scaling it up. And so, like, in theory, right, that would be good for someone like Jack Horner, because now it means that his art could reach more people. But then when you open it up a little bit more, it also means, like, just how the math is going to fucking work. It's going to flood the market with more shit, too. And now you have a choice of either pursuing your art or trying to keep up. And most people will always try to keep up. And then it's like... You know, I think you can draw that analog, analog that draw the allegory uh, further with like digital, right? Which is, you know, using that that piece of advice and keep shooting and all this stuff. There's a huge advantage to that, right? But the disadvantage now is that with no physical media, we've already seen like they could just change an episode of TV. You know, they can go in and take something you make and be like, nope. This is now new because we own it and you fucking don't. And now, like, you know, if you start to abandon physical media, it's like the record of what you did or the record of what exists is gone forever. You know, like, that's a huge disadvantage. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's just all it's it's a very foreboding, I think, uh, commentary in the film about just like, you know, look, man, sometimes technology is good, but maybe, you know, as long as you're very deliberate about how you're going to apply it because <laughs> sometimes it can create what? a situation that's untenable. You know, most would say that technology is good, but what my book presupposes is <laughs> it's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it is, it is like inherently good and also like uh, inherently should not be in the hands of us. Probably it's like, it's well, like, it, to your point, well, it's the whole idea of like, the democratization of art too it's sort of like what lustig's talking about where he's like if you want to go make a movie it goes out and make it not everyone should make movies like i I hate to say it that way but no it's true i mean not everyone should make movies but also like i think it's it's like the democratization of art is good in a world where art doesn't have to be financially incentivized right But it, it is bad when that is the case because then what you end up having is a mass influx of stuff that's actually just going to end up eventually being designed to make money. you know. And that's not going to reflect good thinking. It's not going to reflect good art. And then, and then over time it becomes the saturation, right? Which is – but it's also sort of the great paradox of Jack Horner is what you're talking about is like – Without pornography and the the commercialization of sex, he probably would have never been able to make movies. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there's benefited from a movement (laughs) during a very specific period of time that allowed him to get behind a camera and become famous. Not too unlike Dirk Diggler. Like it just, you know, without these movies, these guys would have never had a platform, for lack of a better term now. But it's also like during the, at the same time, this is the crass, uh, let's say straight world version of, of, of pornography in the seventies and what it enabled the types of folks at the same time, you know, in like New York and a lot of other places, there were big, um, gay porn scenes at yeah, the short and particularly in the, in the mid to late seventies. And during that period, like you couldn't tell many gay stories ever. So 
gay porn actually became a platform where guys who wouldn't otherwise be allowed to uh, step behind a camera and tell their own stories were, it just also happened to have hardcore gay fucking in it, you know? So there's a, there's a weird, it's that, that razor's edge that you walk to where it's like, it's going to enable these people and that's great. It's also going to enable these people. That's good. But when does the, the delusion of grandeur kind of wear out with them? You know, yeah. yeah. Hey, by the way, uh, total kind of an aside, but just related to what you brought up. I met on the piece I worked on last year. I met a couple people that were like tattooing in that scene at the time in New York because uh, tattooing was illegal at the time in New York City. So like you already had to kind of do it undercover in apartments and stuff. And um, I met a couple people and they talked about there was like huge clientele because of the um, the gay scene in New York. There would be like basically like sex parties that are also like tattooing parties and like apparently like hardy would go and davida and like a couple other people that i that i met that it was it's interesting it's an interesting like time because yeah like but and and in some ways like this is what tattooers always would talk about it's like um not to necessarily draw this this line together but i think there is a through line here is like there in every subculture there has to be like keepers of information and stories and stuff until such a time comes that that subculture can kind of become not sub anymore you know what i mean like part of the culture right and then but then i think in an equal and opposite sense and this is like the jack horner paradox kind of i think at its end point is like there also has to still be respect and appreciation so that what they preserve doesn't get lost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't get lost in the flood because sure. there's always the flood when the, when something becomes mainstream or something becomes commercialized. And that's why it's like, so is that reunification at the end, I feel like is so hopeful, not just because of the allegory of the story, but because it is, it's like, these guys should, it sh- they shouldn't be lost to history while history moves on, right? Like, they should be able to move with it, you know, and preserve that. And then, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm being too, like, hopeful about that movie. But, like, in general, I just think uh, I think there's a there are a lot of parallels there. Because everything's a weird subculture until it's not. Until enough people all realize that there's a lot of them and, no, you know, this should just be normal. Until it's part of the mainstream, until it's all normalized, which to a certain degree in the time period that, that, you know, Boogie Nights is happening, like porn was, porn was part of the mainstream after Deep Throat and, you know, behind the green door and stuff like that. Like there was actual legit blockbusters within that, that sub genre. But then, you know, the eighties came along and that, that was that, you know, but it is, I do sometimes wonder um, in the same way that now, you know, I, I wonder about uh, Rick Dalton as a, a uh, fictional character. Like, what what would the later Rick Dalton have looked like after we we leave him at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I do. I often wonder about Jack Horner, like, because again, guys like that were able sometimes to make the jump and make straight movies, make narrative movies. And like a, you know, a Bill Lustig or a Wes Craven become quite 
rich and, and famous and successful. Yeah. Uh, um, so I just wonder what Jack Horner directs next. Yeah, man. I just feel like uh, I always thought about it. That's an interesting thing. I never really, I honestly never really thought about it much from his career standpoint. I felt like um, no matter what, like the harmony was back, you know? And like uh, everyone was where they wanted to get to after like the struggle and the uh, the exodus and all the weirdness and shit. And like, uh, but I never really thought of that because I guess, <laughs> I guess because I didn't want to. Because then if I think about it, really. As you said, it's like some of those guys were able to make that type of transition. But realistically, knowing what I know about that industry, they probably, you know, they probably had a rough 90s. But like, <laughs> he's, he's at least making movies, what looks to be a Miami Vice porn parody, maybe at the end, <laughs> particularly just based on how Dirk is dressed there with yeah. the bright shining star scene. That's what I think is going to happen. But I mean, like, you know, Abel Ferrara made a, a movie called Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy and then went on to actually direct episodes of Miami Vice. So there's always upward mo- mobility, I suppose. It's possible. You know, you never know. <laughs> some people get lucky. Some people break through, you know. And uh, Paul Thomas Anderson makes really good movies about that. Or maybe I mean, he goes uh, to Italy and, and starts directing, like, Chris Mitchum films. I like to think that that they opened a Corvette dealership together in, like, 92. You know, like, they made a couple more porn films. And, like, Jack Horner had the opportunity to... I'm, like, doing fan fiction now. Jack Horner had the opportunity in 91 to direct a Seagal film. And oh, he said, and But he said he, he watched Seagal's... Uh, uh, film where he shot all those Jamaican people and he realized it was just racist propaganda and he said uh, no this isn't art dude I'm not going to do it and so then Dirk says well I got a good line on a piece of land we could put some fucking Corvettes on and Jack's like dude fuck yeah let's do it right and then Buck actually um, partners with them for the stereos for the Corvettes they do custom stereos anyway I'll, I'm going to write this up as a spec and uh, get it to someone. <laughs> Boogie Nights, the later years. This is actually the HBO series. Yeah, no, I was thinking Disney. Plus. I was thinking Disney Plus. <laughs> <laughs> Where it just comes to, like HBO Max, and it's like, what happened to Jack Horner next? But now we have to get into casting who Jack Horner, who would play Jack Horner, because Bert's dead, sadly. Oh, yeah. But it's like, I'm. I don't know. I think there's at least one straight movie he makes. I think he finally does make one in the 80s. Um, Honestly, a horror movie doesn't sound too uh, out of the the element for him. No, because he would see the art in it. He would see the art in the sex, too, and, like, the suspense. I feel like that's a good call. That's a good place. Yeah. You got it because he he still knows you still got to give them the big dicks and the big tits. Yeah, you got to give them what they want, man. You know, and he so I actually think horror is a good call because he he'd get the art end of it. But, yeah, it'd be like uh, that's what he'd be drawn to, man. I think you're right. 
Yeah. He's really making like it's an exorcist ripoff, but in his head, he's really making a movie about religious hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah. Something like that, man, you know? Power, power structures, you know. But if he Who wields it? <laughs> the guy with the biggest dick. Yeah, the one with the biggest dick energy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the guy. But we we always ask at the the, the end of the episodes here uh, on our 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 main show uh, what movie you would double feature with something, and I wondered what you would show if you were, if you owned a movie theater and you got a thirty five millimeter print of Boogie Nights, what would you double feature with it? Holy shit, that's a really hard question. Um, you know, this is going to sound weird, but maybe just because of the, the mothering concept and the search for meaning, the Dolce Vita would be an interesting one to put with it. Yeah, that's real hearty. That's very, very bougie of you. I know it was bougie, but I really do think that'd be a cool, I was going for something unexpected and I, I think, I, I do think thematically those would be interesting ones to watch back to back maybe a little bit insufferable but would be interesting i would probably go with uh, i'd want to pair it with a jonathan demi movie but like something lesser seen by demi just because he always you know we always talk about altman and scorsese and stuff but like anderson is like point blank will be like jonathan demi's the guy yeah the one who influenced like everything i i ever wanted to do and like emmy was the best man yeah but doing something maybe even like off the beaten path from demi it would be kind of cool just as like a mark Wahlberg double feature i know that that's a weird phrase to, to throw up <laughs> there but that um he did that sh- i believe it was a charade remake called or the truth about charlie Oh Mark. yeah, yeah, yeah! I remember that one. It's kind of under undervalued, um, and pretty fun. Which could also just be a light little thing to where you pair it, and it would be kind of uh, unexpected, let's say. Yeah, that would be a good one, man. I was trying to think of other like good like coming of age films that would be fun. I don't know, man. I don't know. There's uh. I mean, all, any Altman movie would go well with it, right? I mean, shortcuts would go really, really well with it. Uh, I guess that's more with Magnolia, though, right? Anyway. Yeah. I don't want to ramble. Where does your your, uh, PTA rankings fall? Is this number one for you still? This is a personal favorite, while I do think that, like, on a both objective and even subjective level, I think the Masters is best one. That's still one. Really? The Masters? Yeah. I think the Masters is best. I, I still it. think there will be Blood's his like unimpeachable masterpiece. It's um, yeah. I, I like I like the the Master quite a bit too. Uh, Phantom Thread's my personal favorite. So that's my wife. My, that's that's Monica's favorite too. Uh, that she actually just said because Boogie Nights was always her favorite PTA movie. And she just said, like, she uh, on, like, second viewing, she's like, yeah, like, this is my favorite one. Now. And, I mean, it it's up there for me. It's top four for me, you know. Um, it's uh, 
not to spoil, because you were telling me before that you, you're basically halfway through our very, very long uh, Magnolia <laughs> episode, but a slight spoiler for you and anybody who hasn't finished it too, is uh, uh, Phantom Thread for me is the uh, most accurate depiction of what it's like to be in a long-term relationship and have to manage one another's expectations that I've possibly ever seen. Like, yeah, it, it's, it is incredible how weirdly relatable everything is. <laughs> no, I agree, man. It's an incredible film about like the way, <clears throat> the way we always have to preserve some piece of ourselves, even while we're giving ourselves to everyone else, you know, like, I think it's, it's a very universal story and he captures it just so fucking well. And it helps that the performances are just insane. Like the whole movie is in, uh, perfect. Yeah. His like uh, uh, his movies from like a, a shot by shot perspective since there will be blood have been pretty much like flawless. And then from there I think it just kind of becomes a a tonal preference. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like uh, in some ways uh well, because I think what gets lost in the the shuffle about the later movies um, that are that become much more austere and detached to a certain degree, like they're fucking funny. Like yeah. Phantom Thread's really, really funny, and There Will Be Blood is at times just flat out hysterically funny. Hysterical. Like some of the shit that that Daniel Day Lewis does, dude, you're just like, oh my god. Like I couldn't obviously have us both having spent some time in and around film sets and like having seen like actors give performances and stuff like I still especially on this last uh, revisit um, because I hadn't watched it in a couple years but I still think about the fact of what it would have had to be like to just be the other guy in every scene with Daniel Day-Lewis and just like look at him being like this man, I don't know what's happening across from me. Like, Dude. who is this fucking person? He's Dude. a maniac. So to that end, actually, Paul F. Tompkins has a really good story he told on a podcast one time. I don't I like I won't obviously tell it because I'm not as funny as him. But it was the basic premise of that because Paul F. Tompkins is in there will be blood briefly, you know, and. He has he chases he's the guy that chases after him like Mr. Plainview Mr. Plainview and there was like a cut version of I guess the scene where like Daniel Day Lewis like whips around on him like and he said like he he genuinely was like oh my god what the fuck yeah <laughs> like, um, like even being someone like Kevin uh, J O'Connor who is quite a, a, a gifted actor and has been. In, in many movies with many, many talented people, including being on like James Cameron sets and shit. And it's like, like when he delivers that, I have a competition in me monologue. Like I, like if I was Kevin J O'Connor, I would just be like, Oh man, I don't <laughs> do I even matter? Like right now, like I'm here. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah. God, he's so, Fucking good. That Paul Dano's so good in that movie, man. He's so yeah. good. He has such See a Aaron Hens in that lim in his limited screen time is so fucking good. One of my favorite um uh Paul Thomas Anderson's really, really good at having people stare at him. Yeah. Uh yeah. and that scene where um Paul Dano first kind of comes in and, and pitches the idea to 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 uh 
Daniel Plainview, and Seer and Hines is just staring at him. So like, good. He's so intense in that scene, at dude. Him like he's gonna put a fucking hole through this guy's head if he doesn't shut up in five seconds. And I'm like, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to do anything if that person was just looking at me that way. Like I would have to stop. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. Can we? Have I done something? Can we reset? I need you to. I need you to face the wall, dude. I can't keep yeah. talking. I, can't. I don't know why you're this angry. I'm it's, really comfortable. He's so good in that scene. He's so intense. Like when he keeps interjecting those questions to try and shake him down. Oh my god, it's so good, dude. Yeah, but it's you know, it, for me. There will be blood is, is the is the one that I I watch and I go yeah, you did it like you just you made the the Godfather of of your era and like fuck it That's great I mean it's uh, like I don't know I mean I, he's honestly one of those dudes it's like one of the, it's a cop out but there's a handful of directors I think it's true about where it's like there's like five all of his films are extremely long and there's like at least five of them I would put on right now and just watch. You know what I mean? Like interchangeably, I, I, I blood on this go around is I literally turned it on at like midnight and yeah. was like, I'll watch 40 minutes of this and I'll finish the other two hours tomorrow. I'll basically fall asleep and I'll find a good place. I was up till three. Like, I was yeah. Just, and I mean, like it's, on. it's impossible to stop watching. I feel like what I found with there will be blood specifically you can't stop watching until his son loses his hearing. And then once his son loses his hearing, you're so committed that you just finish it anyway. It's yeah. like you get carried there through just pure, like this is the fucking most incredible thing I've ever fucking seen. This guy emerges from hell in the first scene of the fucking movie. And then just like a demon just infects this entire fucking world. You know, like it's so f- incredible to watch. Well, it's a and vampire. Yeah. It's, it's to me, it's, it, it's another thing I said. It's a vampire movie. It's literally a movie Consumption, about, about a, a vampiric, uh, uh, both colonialism and I, I suppose uh, just capitalism. You know? Yeah, what I think is really fucking fascinating that he's not overt about in the film, though. Um, with there will be, I know I'm talking about Boogie Nights on this episode, but this is what I find very fascinating about there will be blood is even though he doesn't say it overtly, I mean, the development of California in the 20th century, it wasn't a clash between capitalism and Christianity. It was morally for, like, some of the citizens, but actually, like, a lot of the interests of, like, oil companies were being advanced at that time by, like, evangelical and Baptist preachers and shit like that. So, like, there was there was a lot of showmanship, christianity going on at the time that was nothing more than a way to basically colonize a certain area and allow business the business members of the church to move in and scoop up fucking everything you know so like it's even though he isn't overt about that you know again knowing everything you know about pta and how much work goes into just like everything he does like in understanding the history of whatever he's he's making a film about it's it's hard to ignore that, you know, that very practical, real way that, like, the development of California and California wealth played out in the 20th century. It was the interplay of Christianity as a way to to huckster people, man, so that the business people could come in, get their fucking claws into the ground, and, and you're fucked, brother. 
and then yeah. you don't have shit. It was the real snake oil. Yeah, man. They get yeah. They get in. They own your fucking resources. Now what are you gonna do? You're fucked. And then you know the fact that he took that and turned it into just a very long episode of Spy versus Spy was pretty cool. But like with just <laughs> dudes punching each other in the head over and over again. <laughs> but he just walks up and smacks him and puts his face in the mud. It is. <laughs> earnestly as bad as i feel about it extremely satisfying i have to say <laughs> like because you just like i hate to say it but paul dano's face man you just want to watch it get punched that's why he's Look so good in that role dude he's you you fucking hate him he plays it perfectly and he's gonna be great in the riddler just watching batman punch him <laughs> <laughs> Poor Paul Dano. He seems like a good guy, great actor, but you know, you can't help it when you're born looking like a guy that some people might want to punch in the head. Yeah. But, brother, it's been great. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. Of course. We'll have to do this again as we traverse down memory lane, but uh, take care. Yeah, you too, buddy. Thank you. Yeah. Where you go and what you looking for?